Section 5 of The Desirable Alien at Home in Germany by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 Pax Germanica Servants, Fairy Tales, and Tailors. Yes, comparing the domestic life of nations, I have come to think that there is a certain dead level of happiness, or at least contentment, obtaining in the German Empire. It is enjoyed soberly enough, it is true, but enjoyed in the same degree by no other nation. Dead level seems the exact word to express what I mean. The organised happiness of a sensible, patient, non-nervous people. It is a happiness which is legislated for, happiness that is adjudicated in equal portions to every Teuton in exchange for what is so much dearer to Latins than any amount of ease or comfort, their libre arbitre. The Kaiser is pleased to dispense happiness, nay, according to some of his recent utterances, he considers himself bound before God to do so. So he spends his days dispensing legislative ordinances which beseem the genius fit him with the idiosyncrasies of a people so biddable and reasonable as his subjects. He simply and formally guarantees to them a fixed sum of well-being. And I think he does this work very well. No misery shows in Germany. There is no large-eyed, apathetic, wizened, deplorable slum-child to be seen hanging about in the squalid alleys of H, near the tenements that house them, just as they do in York or Birmingham. There are no dreary collections of sodden rags slouching along the gutters, picking up refuse, shrieking bad language, if interrupted, that answer to the name of woman, such as one sees rarely, and more rarely now, in London, but still one sees them now and then. And the sort of outdoor hotel dieu that stretches all along the Thames embankment at midnight, the free seats which a kind policeman is apt to warn the better class against sitting on, are things a German would blench to look upon, and refuse to believe in when told. But on the other hand, no one ever looks very happy in Germany. I never saw a face that could be called at all symptomatic of the joie de vivre. No one ever seems to be able to afford to go on the bust, or to care to do so. In England, bust generally means beer, and too much of it. In Germany, the stream of good liquor, for the light paying almost for the asking, flows so evenly, so unadulteratedly, that the delicious forbidden fruit feeling that tempts a man to exceed is absent. Beer in Germany is properly made and properly kept. It is excellent, it is delicious sometimes, but it is no treat. It is just common. In countries where wine takes the place of beer, there is no such thing as forbidden grapes. Thus on all hands is the lure of the unpermitted abolished in Germany. Taxed, admonished, cared for, managed out of all individuality, this great people seem to lie in the hollow of the iron hand with a collective contentment realising all through the course of their lives 
Wordsworth's senile ideal, quote, to live without ambition, hope or aim, unquote, and growing so fat upon the regime as to reassure outsiders that there is no a yen bite of inwit, no pulling against the collar. There is no official cruelty. Perhaps individually, Germans dimly realise that they are fulfilling the ideal summed up by Rosencrantz and Gilderstern for the benefit of Hamlet, too greedy of happiness. Quote, happy in that they are not over-happy. Nor do they seem to be where these cynical gentlemen were not either, the very button of fortune's cap. To stand for a few minutes in a German waiting-room and survey the mandates on the walls is to realise how this patient people is in government leading strings. Why, the entire landscape is plastered over with quadrilateral boards bearing the words Verboten, Verbotener Weg, Verbotener Eingang, Verbotener Ausgang, Rachen Verboten, Nach acht Uhr morgens die Stücke ausschütteln Verboten, Forbidden Road, Forbidden Entrance, Forbidden Exit, Smoking Forbidden, Forbidden to shake tablecloths out of the windows after eight o'clock in the morning. All these forbiddings meet you at every turn in Germany. They are alternately grotesque, reasonable, irritating, and sufficient cause for revolutions. The game of poker is forbidden in every state in Germany except in the Grand Duchy of Oldenburg. It is to all intents and purposes forbidden to introduce a young male acquaintance to a young female acquaintance because supposing an illicit amour should occur after your introduction you will be held to have played the part of pandarus and will be sent to prison for many months it is forbidden for socialists to be dancing masters or teachers of athletics it is forbidden for post office officials to give back the money for one damaged ten finished stamp but they may do it for ten i once witnessed the pleasant scene of a father taking three penny postage stamps to a post office over which his little boy had spilled a bottle of ink and requesting threepence in return the post office official cited the regulation to which i have just referred the father then purchased seven more postage stamps gravely tore them into fragments and received in return for the whole one mark on the other hand, if you desired to travel to Dorf Enterfuld in the centre of Pomerania, or to northwest Chester, a village in Pennsylvania, USA, and if you will go respectfully to the railway station, it will be the duty of an official in blue uniform to give you written out the times of starting of every train on any alternative route and of every steamship from the one place to the other. Moreover, he will telegraph for you to every junction that lies between the place of your starting and the boundaries of the German Empire, and at each junction a railway porter will meet you and present you with your ticket for the next stage, as well as with baggage checks for your luggage. Then there is their comprehensive system of insurance. Absurd, but far more sensible than the English form in that it really is insurance 
while the other is but a form of compulsory saving. Would English servants choose to give their services under the humiliating conditions which affect their German counterparts? The German manservant is hardened to the dossier, the card which is out against him and that can be referred to by the police at his every change of place and severely modify the conditions of it. He is humiliated at every turn and takes it out in tips, so far as I can make out, for it is a fact that he is entitled to scrutinise the visiting list of any house into which he is about to enter. And for what purpose? That he and the tax assessor may assess adequately the approximate value of the tips that he will receive. For every guest, every caller, is expected to tip the man or woman who lets him in or takes off his coat, and every time he calls. An ample visiting list composed of rich people, the tax assessor takes this fact into consideration when assessing the amount of a man or woman's tax. I was walking through the streets of a small German town with one of these revenue officials, who was a connection of Joseph Leopold's, when he observed the servant male of one of his friends, said he to me, that girl has got a new feather in her hat. I shall have to inquire if her wages have not been raised. This, of course, was a joke, but it came painfully near the knuckle. Such petty tyrannies abound. Still, there are compensations, mighty compensations, I had it driven into me very plainly one rainy Saturday afternoon when we had taken a tram ride from the town of Trier to a village called Eupen. At that time I had a house in London, and in this house I had left two female servants, Norfolk girls. I say girls, for with amiable tolerance one always somehow calls servants girls. They like it. But these were women who had been with me for eighteen years. They lived downstairs in a semi-basement, light enough, comfortable enough. They had no distressing dossier. They had no threepenny tax to pay once a week, as yet. They had no need beyond curiosity to scrutinise my visiting list. They had what they loved, tradesmen to call for orders. They were utterly self-contained. I mean that they had no occasion to go beyond the front gate. They did not, even under the pleasant regime of the telephone, need to be in continual readiness to be sent out in white caps and aprons, as was our cruel fashion in the eighties, for cabs or to send telegrams. Yet this system, wrong-headedly, they much preferred. Many a picture had I drawn for them of the pleasant continental fashion of marketing, the life of the city square, the on of the village pump, the occasional street row, the fallen horse, the derelict, unwieldy lads being held to the lock-up, the interests of the pavement generally. All this excitement, I said, is their continental sister's daily pabulum. But recognised statutory outlet these virgins of the rocks cling to, and goodness knows how thin a strand of pleasure it is, their Sunday out, their ineluctable, indestructible privilege. But it is all they have, and what the eye sees not, the heart does not lack.
if my own austere and middle-aged maids had been with me at Eupen on that Saturday afternoon, they would have turned away with loathing from the cheerful sights I saw. They are too old now, and they have not been brought up to it. They are quite content with their own particular Valpurgus night of once a fortnight. A number of healthy, nicely dressed girls got out of the tram at Eupen. Some were alone, some were accompanied by young men, sheepish, but not nearly so sheepish as the English youth of the same rank. Some, indeed, were quite sprightly and wore a leaf in the ribbon of their soft felt hats. All the girls were gay and with good figures, though inclined to be stout. How many young servant girls in England have decent figures, hold themselves up and have rosy cheeks? Indeed, the exigencies of her place in England demand that an adequate parlour-maid should be slim and interesting-looking. Tisic, if possible. We had a girl once with a delicate complexion like a rose-leaf that she chewed rice and starch to keep up. She died later. Not much later. These young people fared towards a restaurant whose porch was wreathed with vines, Inside there was a bar and a big table spread with different sorts of sandwiches. Attendants hung about ready to dispense them. There were little tables with variegated cloths on them and flowers in vases. There was a string band of a dozen performers on a raised estrade, and a large open space in front of the band fringed by the little tables. I had a British longing for tea, or at any rate for coffee. I said to Joseph Leopold, Can't we go in there and have something? Joseph Leopold showed himself strongly averse from the suggested proceeding. It really isn't the place where I could take you, he said. And I exclaimed, Why, Isn't it a restaurant? It is the place where the servants of Trier spend their Sundays out, he said. We should embarrass them very much if we went in and sat amongst them. They will drink and dance and drink and dance with their sweethearts till it is time to go home. When will that be? About ten o'clock. What time do you expect your cook to be in on her day out? But if we lived in Trier and had a house and had servants, should I allow them to come to a place like this? You couldn't stop them. It is the proper thing all over the country. You probably won't know these well-dressed young ladies again tomorrow when you go to call on Herr Professor and B and one of them opens the door to you. Think how embarrassed she and you would be if you sat and drank beer in her company today and watched her dancing with the man of Professor G. Our servants, I said, wouldn't let themselves down so as to come to a place like this. Have our servants got apple cheeks under the flower-wreathed hats and bouncing, springing figures under drab mackintoshes? I consider the English system of grey slaves immured in basements disgraceful. And when you do let them out, they have nothing more lively to do than visit other grey slaves in basements or walk the pair of them gloomy, hopeless about grey streets and stare at the closed doors of theatres and restaurants. Here happiness is catered for, 
pane et sensibus. Well, come away into the forest, and we may find a forester's lodge where they'll give us some beer, and perhaps a slice of black bread and some butter. We walked along for miles, like Hansel and Gretel, or Eurinda and Euringel. Never saw a forester's hut or any cottage at all. A German forest is a forest. It is not only a desert place where the fear the wild beast congregate. I fancy it was my grim-fed upbringing which made me stare with all my eyes when I was first introduced to an English forest, the new forest, the heathery open waste that occupies nearly the whole of Hampshire. This is beautiful, I said, but it is not a forest. It is no more a forest than my native Northumberland, with the wide wind-swept moors affording cover to neither man nor beast. Here in William the Conqueror's great piece of devastation, no tailor could lose himself or climb into a high tree to, quote, spy the glimmer of the lamp in a woodman's cottage where he may spend the night, unquote. Sentences like these were in my mind. It was as still as a church. Not a breath of wind was stirring. Not even a sunbeam shone through the thick leaves. These legends of Grimm, read by the nursery firesides for the mere story and sensation, the charm to be realised afterwards in cold middle age, nearly all begin like this. Or, if it is not a tailor, it is a king's son who has, quote, a mind to see the world. Setting forth alone or with only a very faithful friend, he either loses his way or he comes to some charmed cottage inhabited by an old woman who is a witch. But it is a real forest that is meant, nothing in the least like the new forest. The nearest thing to that in Germany is the Duneburger Heide, and that is not the locale of these tales of perilous charm. Mr. Walter de la Mer, I think, to judge from his poetry, must have walked in German forests through long days and felt the exciting sense of wayfaring and the soothing, numbing impact of the slow procession of the hours. The leafy canopies hide the blue sky, and those hours seem to pass audibly in the ghastly silence like the stillness of a room with a coffin in it, which is a permanent feature of these birdless wildernesses. They are full, nevertheless, of creeping, prowling, inarticulate creatures, the fall of a decaying leaf, the spring of a bent twig, the sly pad of a deer in its rustling progress through the black brushwood in search of rare spring or distant river, bears an uncertain significance that makes the heart stand still. It is bound to feed the sense of romantic excitement to which every person brought up on legend is inclined to give way on the slightest, vaguest appeal to the basic faiths of his childhood. Though it is nearly always a forest in German legend, it is not always a prince. Sometimes it is a wonderful fiddler, or an experienced huntsman, or more frequently than either of these, it is a tailor. 
the germans have a particular fondness for tailor heroes they are little and plucky like pepin deristal who must really have been the original of the superstition that good stuff is packed in little bundles and i am sure moreover that they must have come from germany the prince is as a rule a fainéant he sits down and puts his head in his hands after he has lost his suite and does not know which way to turn a princess is generally found at once to look after him but the experienced huntsmen and the wonderful fiddlers and the lusty tailors are of a finer invention they climb into the trees to get their bearings they pass the night on one of the branches to avoid falling prey to wild beasts and in the morning they generally see daylight and a way out or plunge still deeper to find the charmed cottage and the old woman in it who is a witch i must quote some verses of a poem of what little lum is which to me exquisitely renders the sense of imminence the almost fear of the magic loneliness induced in the romantic mind by prolonged periods spent in a german forest weary pleasingly exhausted one is ready for such faint otherworld suggestions as mr de la mer is able to give us by a touch a word a cadence the journey heart-sick of his journey was the wanderer foot sore and sad was he and a witch who long had lurked by the wayside looked out of sorcery lift up your eyes you lonely wanderer she peeped from her casement small here's shelter and quiet to give you rest young man and apples for thirst withal and he looked up out of his sad reverie and saw all the woods in green with birds that flitted feathered in the dappling the jewel bright leaves between and he lifted up his face towards her lattice and there alluring wise slanting through the silence of the long past dwelt the still green witch's eyes and there fell upon his sense the briar haunting the air with its breath and the faint shrill sweetness of the birds throats their tents of leaves beneath and there was the witch in no wise heeding her arbour and fruit-filled dish her pitcher of well-water and clear damask all that the weary wish and the last gold beam across the green world faltered and failed as he remembered his solitude in the dark night's inhospitality on that particular afternoon when joseph leopold and i walked to find a cottage for tea the sun was not quote, shining bright no gentle breeze was blowing among the trees and everything did not seem gay and pleasant that is one favourite beginning of grimm's no this was such a godforsaken afternoon as that described in jorinda and joringel for as these two doomed young lovers went out to wander in the forest all was beautiful and bewitched quote. the sun was shining through the stems of the trees and brightening up the dark leaves and the turtle doves cooing softly between the may bushes unquote. then feeling the deadly influence of witchcraft eurinda begins to cry and sits down in the sunshine with Uringel, who cries too quote, 
they had wandered too far and come too near the enchanted castle whose walls they saw through the brushwood close to them unquote. yes all unwittingly they have come into the circle of the charm and the old witch who lives in the castle and you must have a grudge against Jorinda, and been in love with your ingle, changes the maiden into a nightingale. She begins to jug, jug, jug into the ears of her agonised sweetheart, as he sits spellbound with horror beside her. He rises to his feet and stands like a stone, and cannot stir or weep, while the witch, in the form of an owl, mocks them. And when the sun sets, at last she comes out of her bush in her human shape and carries off the nightingale, still jug-jugging. The glamour of that tale was on me as I walked through the woods at the side of Joseph Leopold and watched the sun going down. Strange red toadstools began to glow under the dead leaves in between the twisted tree roots. We were on the fringe of a much deeper, darker patch of forest, and our paths seemed to sway and grow more meagre and finally to lead straight into it. It was about five o'clock. We were three miles from Trev, and we must follow that path to get home. I caught hold of his arm and wondered what terrible sound would soon break the stillness. Just as we turned into the wildwood and lost even the consoling sight of the red disk of the sun setting between the fir trees below and glowing like a woodcutter's fire. I heard a cry I had never heard before, and one more terrible than I have ever imagined, harsh, raucous, something between a laugh and a roar. It left me nearly as spellbound as Uringle when he missed his love from his side. What's that? Oh, what's that? I breathed. A wild cat. Joseph Leopold said composedly. End of section five.